Hello, 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 everyone. Uh, welcome to the very first episode of the Burn It Down Already podcast. Uh, my name is Blake Kelly. This is Rachel Rothenberg. Hi. Um, we just wanted to start out and talk a little bit about uh, why we decided to start this podcast, what it really is all about, and then transition into our first um, into our first topic, which is capitalism at large. Uh, we're coming to y'all from um, Seattle. Um, I'm visiting Seattle right now. <laughs> Rachel lives here. Um, but uh, right off the bat, you know, Rachel and I uh, met uh, about a year ago-ish, and we definitely have like mutual interest in politics, and we've talked about it a lot, but we were like, if we wanted to start a podcast, but we didn't want it to just be about like, oh, like Democrats and Republicans, or oh, like the nitty gritty of it all, because there's a lot of podcasts out there about that, but really talking about the larger, broader concepts of, you know, how capitalism, imperialism, colonialism, these kind of like large, like big picture, big sky ideas, then kind of get infiltrated into our government, our society, and how that actually plays out in our day to day, and how that plays out in our lives, how that plays out in our communities, um, how that plays out in our families and um, and our cities, and and really um, trying to put language to some things that are really affecting us in this in this climate. Um, is there more that you want to? Yeah, add I mean, about I that? think um, you know, just to talk a little bit about our backgrounds and mm. where we come from in this. Um, so I do live here in Seattle. Um, I'm a doctoral candidate in international studies at the University of Washington. Um, and part of, I think, both my research interests and just sort of what I'm interested in in life um, is this question of how do we live our politics, right? What do politics mean um, in terms of sort of how we feel them in our bodies, how they affect our relationships with other people, um, and how sort of the, the sorts of, um, the, the sorts of sort of macro ideas um, are really embodied and felt by all of us just by the, the the way that we go about and live our lives. So I hope that this podcast will also be an opportunity for us to talk about um, the ways in which politics mm. don't just exist on sort of this high level, you know, this sort of, uh, it's both structural and something that um, is, makes up sort of a lived experience of, mm. of who we are. So I think I'm, I think, you know, the way I come to it, I think is both in sort of this sort of anthropological interest in mm -hmm. how people encounter politics. And also I think um, this sense of um, thinking about politics in a way that's generative and creative and allows us to kind of dream up different possibilities and alternatives. Um, so I, I think that this can be a space that's both realistic and optimistic. Yes, and I think that that's uh, that's that speaks really well is to what we'll get into about this idea of it being called burn it down already is really this idea that we kind of need to name that the structures that are in place are not supportive to where we want to be heading, um, and keep on continuing this incrementalism change is not actually going to bring us the solutions that we are we are looking for, and those kind of changes can actually be pragmatic. I think a lot of times we think of idealism and pragmatism not being being at odds with each other. And I think actually sometimes they can be more, uh, you can actually introduce pragmatism into idealistic uh, standards or you first have to be idealistic before you can be pragmatic. 
Um, but to speak to uh, where I'm coming from this podcast, um, you know, I grew up in a, um, I grew up in a very small town um, on the Mississippi River um, in between Illinois and Iowa. And uh, I grew up as a queer individual um, in a very, very small town. And it really shaped my perspective of like how people exist um, culturally impacting your ability to either feel uh, seen or unseen within those communities and then how the, how the politics actually shape that and how the politics and the cultural politics shapes, um, shapes that perspective too. And, you know, I was always obsessed with politics since I was a very early age, um, because I thought that like policy was going to be the thing that could change that culture. And, you know, now I'm kind of at that point where it's kind of this, uh, policy has to change, but culture also has to change first. And so it's like, what does the relationship between those two things look like? Um, and, you know, I studied politics in uh, undergrad, and then I also was um, in the nonprofit world and advocacy world for bodily autonomy for a really long time. Um, and so I'm just coming about it from honestly being very knowledge knowledgeable in my own research around it and um, kind of just seeing uh, what comes up from here? Yeah, and I think, I think you know, we all we both come from these sorts of background. You know, I'm from the Rust Belt, um, from you know both sides of my family, very um, you know, to be very strong sort of labor supporters, mm. union workers, mm. miners, and garment workers. And I think you know the his the the history of my family is one in which um, people are constantly coming up against politics and mm. it's shaping. Um, you know, not just sort of how you see yourself, but also um, the ways in which you're you're perceived by others, right? So, um, absolutely, I think you, you know, I think oftentimes we we talk about politics and culture as things that um, are not are are dependent on each other, but I think aren't in, aren't embodied. Um, and so, I think you know what we bring what we bring I think to this space is. Um, having lived out those politics as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I completely agree. I think when people talk about politics, they think that like, oh, I'm not like, I don't, I'm not into politics. Mm -hmm. And they think about it from this lens of like, what they're really saying is like, they don't want to engage. They think of politics as like presidential politics, or they think about it in like, you know, this very like abstract, understanding when like politics is literally like the essence of how we live every day yeah and it's like and it's very uh it's almost like baked into the system mm -hmm. um and that's kind of what i what i think we'll be drawing upon a lot in this podcast yeah <laughs> yeah um yeah and i think you know i think we should probably talk about what we mean when we talk about politics, right? Because mm -hmm. we're not just talking about politics no, in terms of electoralism, right? Right, right. In terms of um, what can we do to, um, you know, promote one side or the other on the electoral stage. And it's mm. not to say, right, that elections don't have their place or that they're not important. But, right, when I don't think that when we talk about it, we're necessarily talking about it in those kinds of, no. um, those sorts of procedural terms. No. Yeah. Uh, no, absolutely not. We're talking about politics in the sense of how, you know, structural um, governments or systems are put in place that inherently impact and affect people's lives based on how those policies are created. Um, 
if if and or if you want to provide more to yeah you. i mean i just think you know i think that we we don't i don't think we perceive ourselves as being like an elections podcast no, or one where no. we'll sit here and make predictions for you about no you know how trump will do in 24 or something like no. that um i personally i don't think that's really use that's no. useful for people no, and i also think that also those podcasts yeah also <laughs> i think that there's there's plenty of podcasts for um for that kind of material i think that we're going to try to think expansively mm-hmm. um and we're going to try i think to um to just like riff and like imagine and definitely kind of yeah. definitely um yeah and you know as things come up in news and events i'm sure it'll become relevant to something that's happening and talking about it um but i think that's a good transition um into uh what we want to talk about is there anything else that you wanted to say before we transition no let's transition okay great um so the first uh topic that uh rachel and i agreed upon uh to talk about was capitalism at large um and it's something that i've been you know really trying to dissect what capitalism means and like the definition of capitalism because I think people can often associate or think that that a capitalism means economy. Yeah. They think that like, oh, capitalism is literally the economy. And to start off with a broad-based definition, like economies existed before capitalism did. <laughs> like broad-based definition, <laughs> um, like markets existed, like, like even financial trading existed, which isn't actually even inherently capitalism. So like state that off the bat. Um, but it's kind of this like woolly mammoth, if you will, of like a conversation because it's so nuanced and so dense of what it really means. Um, also I've been thinking about it a lot in terms of like my own life of like, how would all of our lives operate differently if we didn't have to work in order to get our essential needs be met. Right. And like, it's kind of in terms of that by the terms of capitalism or, and then you can get into this whole, like worthiness aspect of like people feeling like you have to work hard in order to have to like survive and live and it's kind of there's also this aspect of capitalism that has created this entire culture of you know like you have to compete with another person and that creates a mindset for people even from an individual perspective is like you can only rely on yourself you can only you get you have to like you know be wary of your neighbors you have to you have to be very guarded because at the end of the day like you never know when the shoe's gonna drop or like if you don't have it then the other person does and it creates this like uh pie um analogy of like if i don't have pie the other person does um yeah do you want to do you yeah i mean i think i think yeah i mean i think just what just what you said about we think of capitalism as um i mean thinking about it from a historical perspective when we think about the emergence of the capitalist age right um beginning sort of in the you know it, it emerges it is sort of it coincides right with the introduction of things like colonialism imperialism um the domination of um of sort of european powers um capitalism right it's it's uh it's a change that's so radical not just in how people are thinking about markets and commodities and trading and things like that but it's also it was a really radical change in just how 
um, the, the rhythms of life were put together, right? And it exists in sort of two ways, right? The first being these sorts of radical changes that are happening um, in sort of the, in the colonized world, right? The, the radical changes to, um, to livelihoods and autonomy there in the service of um, accruing capitalist power, but also like what in, in what the Marxists call the imperial core, right? It's radical renegotiation of things like the family, mm -hmm. of gender relations, mm -hmm. of, um, you know, the emergence of uh, sort of the, the petty bourgeois middle class, right? Which they perform the backbone of the development of contemporary right-wing politics. So the way that I think of capitalism, I think as someone who is anthropologically inclined is to think of capitalism as this rupture in social systems that were pre-existing. And I also think it's important to talk about that because it demonstrates, right, that capitalism is not something ontological, right? It's not a, um, it's not a pre-existing state of being. Mm. You know, mm -hmm. sometimes people will say, right, the, the natural sort of human inclination is to, um, is to exist in this sort of free, you know, the state of total freedom, which just ha so happens to coincide with capitalist interests, right? Forgetting that the capitalist age is really a, um, just a tiny sliver, I think, in the in the full sort of spectrum of human experience. But it is something that requires this kind of um, this this sort of adherence to. Um, particular and absolute and ontological roles. So I always think of when I think about capitalist oppression, I think of it not just as something that's economic, but also something that is um, that's really like social in its in its form. And we were talking earlier about about the nuclear family, mm -hmm. right? And that's like a really good example of a of a social form that emerges from um, that emerges from capitalism, right? That emerges as this sort of man, woman, child as a way of um, creating these discrete units of laborers. So the man can go out and work in the factory or in the mill or something like that. And the woman stays home and takes care of the reproductive labor, right? The rearing of children, the caring of how the caring for the household mm -hmm. and things like that. That's an incredibly new construction, but we see it being used as a sort of um, ontological weapon as like as almost like uh saying that it was the original right exactly. like that it was the original thing and then also basing it off of like uh honestly like mis misogyny and and um the idea that uh because we're gendered in some way that like we inherently have like roles that we have to play right roles in roles in an economic system yeah right? and it's and it's almost then it's it, it's kind of funny because it's in antithetical to to this idea of complete freedom. Right. <laughs> that, that's like, that's kind of the joke. Yeah. Because it's like, everyone wants to be free and say, no, we can do whatever. But then there's like very strict rules on how you're supposed to be free. Right. And yeah. and that's like, like if you think about it, even from like the family unit, like aspect or dynamic, it's, it's like a, um, it's like, wait, like I thought we were allowed to do whatever, we were supposed to be allowed to do whatever we want. But then at the same time, capitalism is like, no, like, because you are a man or you're because like, literally your gender is a, is a man, like, these are the stereotypes and these are the ways that you have to exist. And then that like that filters down into the way that we perceive ourselves, it, it fits down into the way that we feel accepted in our communities. Right. And then also, like, I come from this very, like, uh, you know, 
Midwestern, like grit, work hard sort of culture. And like everyone is rewarded and everyone is praised based on just how hard they work. And like your value is placed specifically on how much you do. And if you're not doing, then you aren't respecting everyone else. Yeah. Um, and then you get judged for it. Like there's like, there's like inherent in this, like, oh, he's not good because he's lazy or like he doesn't want to do anything. And uh, to me, like, it's interesting because it, it's like, well, why do we, like the only reason why we're supposed to be doing, like I'm, I'm taking it from capitalism now down to personal, then we can kind of like go back from there. But now the idea is like we as humans to exist in this capitalist state have to be able to produce to be of to be to be like a, a machine honestly in some sense so that we can then be valued inside of the community or and so that we can be accepted in society in some way and this is the reason why if you look now at the macro level when we're dealing with homelessness we're dealing with any population that is not like able to produce 100 there is this judgment on them around how like they're not actually an asset to society so we don't actually need them and that's the reason why i feel sometimes that in politics like they they are the ones that get demonized because we've created such a culture that says you know like if you're not producing then you're not worth value and we only value people based on though that like that item of production and if you stop and if you stop and say well why can't we all just be like, yeah, like, of course people are gonna work. Of course there is gonna be work that's being done. And like, that, I, that doing work is not the same thing as capitalism. Um, but if we can just kind of reevaluate that for a second, you know, the, the layers get very deep here around like, um, if we can stop and just know that we can reframe our communities, reframe our societies to say that like, our value in a family unit our value inside of our communities, our value inside inside of our uh, state or country is not predetermined by how much effort we put in or by how much work that we technically do. I think that would radically, radically reframe the way that we would have to think about how we operate as a country and as a society. Yeah, I mean, this is something that I talk to my students about quite a bit um, because I've taught classes on sort of economic history and. Um, you know, sort of human rights and things like this. And one of the things that we always talk about is um, this idea that um, there's not a lot of space in sort of contemporary American life for, um, I mean, there's not a lot of room now just to be, mm -hmm. right? And, you know, we can talk about, for example, this idea of the third place, right? That, mm -hmm. um, that, you, you know, that you may have a place, to, you know, you have your home, you have your work, you're performing particular kinds of labor there, and then you're going to your, you know, your bowling league or your debating club or something like that. And, um, and that's where you're sort of innovating, you're talking to other people about ideas, and it's happening on this very micro level, right? So it's ordinary people talking about the kinds of things that they can do. And I think now, you know, and I, I think I see it really in our generation as well, um, you know, if you go on TikTok and you see people talking about, what is it, like your five to nine, the thing that you do before and after work, right? Um, in which you're always sort of, you're maximizing everything, yeah. right? You're maximizing your time. You're figuring out how to be more productive. Right. Um, and there's also an emphasis on 
human development being on self-improvement so you can efficientize yourself. Right. It's I don't think it's self-improvement in the sense of like, I want to feel good about myself right. or about um, how I'm working for my community or something like that. It's about, okay, how am I, how can I, how am I maximizing myself to work more efficiently for, um, for whatever, you know, startup I'm at or whatever right. tech company I'm at or something like that. Um, and I, I find it, I find it very scary. I think that, um, this is the way that we are talking about like human development and the way that we're talking about liberation is to get yourself feeling good enough that you are, you're working better. Um, and you know, I think I, I find it frightening that this sometimes is like the limit of the limit of what we just have the time and inclination to imagine even. Yeah. You know, um, the, something that's coming to mind is I was listening to a podcast, um, the Glenn and Doyle podcast, we could do hard things. And they had the guest on there that created the nap ministry. Mm -hmm. Um, and I'm forgetting their name, which is why I'm on my phone looking it up right now. Um, and, uh, um, Tricia Hersey. Okay. Uh, and I'm sorry if I mispronounced that name. Um, and basically the idea was like the way that we resist capitalism and the way that we exist this culture is actually rest. And like, we actually have to be resourced so that we can have an imagination yeah. around how we want to move through these like very complex issues that we're, that we're facing. And capitalism is pur purposely there to make us continue to grind and to continue to make us exhausted and to continue doing it so that we don't, so we feel like we're on the hamster wheel and that we feel like we're continuously just like going through the loop, wanting to get off, but there is no getting off. And I think that sometimes that's like kind of what my parents kept reflecting to me sometimes when I was like so angry, they were like, yeah, but like, just like, yeah, it's the hamster wheel. Like that, like, what can you do? And I think I was like, but we can change the hamster wheel. Like what, like, what are we doing here? Right. Um, and um, what, what she has really articulated in the nap ministry and like really bringing to light was basically like when we're able to rest and fully be resourced, we can like resist through rest. We can actually feel like we have more um, resources to find out ways that we want to exist inside the system while also working on ways that we can find our ways out of it. Um, and uh, a lot of it has to do with like imagination, which, you know, like a lot of authors have, you know, like uh, Andre Lord about hooks. Like there's a lot of people that have mentioned this, but imagination is really the key to us reimagining what it really means to live this life because like we we kind of we have the power to reshape it in any way we want to and all we have to do is like collectively agree that that's what we want to do and that's honestly all like quote like revolution burning it down already really needs to mean it doesn't mean an act of actual violence right. it means it means that like all we have to be able to do is collectively be able to imagine something better and it can be outside the structures that exist right now because we literally have the power to do that and there's and like people will say no we don't and like i do i do recognize that there are oppressive systems that do not want to relinquish that kind of power but if we collectively agree that that's what we want to do we can and something that makes that reminds me of this is um um chile's um like current political system you know 
there, I mean, obviously their system is set up different than the United States is, but their people voted, I th like I think it was two years ago now, to completely redo their constitution. And they voted for that. And then like their, and then all of their lawmakers basically like came up with a new constitution. Then they went back to, to like a public vote on it. And the public voted that, that, that constitution down. And now they're like reworking on it again. But it's like, like, there's nothing, I mean, obviously there's nothing in our government that says that we can kind of have that sort of like national mm -hmm. referendum, but like we can, if we want to, I mean, I like, I don't know. It just, to me, it's just like, like, but it just seems arbitrary to me. Yeah. I mean, I think it's something that's sort of like unique to the American psyche in some ways, which is that like, I think that oftentimes, like, I think it takes a lot to get people to think about just an alternative, I think, just to the structure. Well, because... Sorry, I'm interrupting. That's okay. No, but I mean, I think about things like, I mean, even things that seem relatively, like things like packing the court, right? Mm -hmm. Adding more justices. There weren't always none. No. You know, but now I think, you know, the, the idea of even just the smallest kind of inc uh, incremental shift yeah. in how things are. It's seen as radical. Is It's seen as... Um, yeah, I mean, not just radical, but somehow destructive. Yeah, right? like like you're just like you're destroying the system somehow. Yeah. but like it's like it it's like everything is seen as radical now. Yeah. So like no matter what you do, it's seen as like any change is seen as and this and this has been this has been complete like right wing sort of like fascism you know like rhetoric that has been coming out basically since the Red Scare. Like everything that has been that has been introduced to create more like betterment for everyone has been talked about as communism specifically, or like, you know, like talked about as if like, they're gonna take your jobs, like you're not, you're, you're like gonna die on a hospital bed, like all of these like horror stories about what it, what it means. And the thing about it is, is if we wanna get like get a little bit bigger, I studied international politics and in, in, in university that like the United States had, has had a vested interest in making sure that other forms of government fail at every turn and like part of the 1980s um and like the cia and all of that was a vested interest to ensure that those countries governments actually did fall so like we don't even have like a good experiment case-based study to go off of because the united states basically was like no we're gonna make sure that this falls so that we you, we don't even have a case study to go off of right right i mean if we think the United States, I mean, it sort of acts as the supreme, um, you know, I think we're, num we're number one in policing kind right. of the rest of the world falling in line. And the rest of the world chooses to do, you know, I think, for example, um, the election of Lula in Brazil mm. is um, an excellent example of, I think, a pu pushback by people in the global south on, um, on the sort of, um, you know, the U.S.-backed, I think, structure. And I think there was this assumption that, um, that the, the re-election of Bolsonaro and the, this kind of tilt towards um, a, a, a right-wing populist authoritarian, yeah, that it's just self-evident, right? That it's something that's just going to happen. Um, and I, I'm, I will be curious to see what happens in the next couple of months with Brazil and with Lula and how the United States is going to choose to um, mm. choose to sort of engage with that because we see, you know, what happened in Venezuela when... Mm -hmm. um, when something similar occurred in the US, of course, was heavily involved in that. So just thinking about it from a foreign policy perspective, right? Um, in terms of the US promoting its interests abroad, right? It's also, it's deeply connected to domestic politics here at home. Yeah. 100%, they're linked because 
the United States wants to act like it's, you know, it's being a protector of quote democracy when really it's kind of ensuring that it can stay in power in the way that it needs to be in power. And I think that because people inherently view, there's a perception by a lot of Americans that the United States is inherently good, right. then that that means that no matter what the United States does, it is inherently for a good reason, or that even if there are mistakes that are made by the United States, that it's the best that there is anyway, so then it, it like it nullifies their actions. Right, even when it's bad, it's actually, it's actually okay. Right. Yeah, there's right. some, there's some ulterior thing that, that actually makes, you know, the exploitation of millions of people actually fine and long. Really. <laughs> <laughs> right. I do think, I do think that, that, that sort of self aware, like that, that sort of feeling is changing. You know, when I look at my mm. students now, you know, people that are, you know, 10 to 12 years younger than I am, um, they come in with a very strong understanding mm. of, um, how those patterns, how those patterns have worked and how they are working right now. And I do think there's something about people who grew up in kind of the post 9-11, I mean, you know, I was born in the beginning of the Clinton era, right? This sort of the nadir of neoliberalism in the mm -hmm. United States, right? Um, and there were, I think I was raised with this kind of very sunny outlook about, mm -hmm. about um, what the United States was doing. And then, you know, I'm coming of age and sort of the, the, Bush, the Bush years, years. right? Um, Bush years. <laughs> and, um, you know, that feeling incredibly dark mm -hmm. and um, very, you know, feeling, you know, living under the weight of, of something that felt very authoritarian and coming mm -hmm. to a realization, right, that, um, that your country, right, is not always acting in the world's best, in the world's best interest or in or, the best interest of its own people, right? I, actually, that's yeah. what I was, that, that's a really good segue and why it felt to me like, um, you know, I, I'm, I was also born right at the beginning of the, I was born at right at the beginning of the Clinton administration. And um, I think that it's when I became to question government and systems in general, because I felt like even like as a queer person growing up, there was kind of always this same ideology that like, oh, everyone's really nice and everyone really wants the best for everyone while like still secretly and or outwardly people were like pretty harsh and abusive and potentially violent towards queer people. But at the same time spreading this like message or this like community that like, oh, we're all, we're all like these peace loving people when that like really wasn't the case. And I think that that like was a microcosm of like what even like a larger, you know, like a larger like Bush administration is an example of, right. which is basically like, oh, like, they don't they're not actually here to protect me right. they're not actually here to like say what they're say what they want to be doing and like we say we have all these rights but like we really don't and um to me that's kind of that's what originally created this rift for me around understanding and believing in in quote capitalist <laughs> like u.s government was like you're not really here to protect me like there's no there was no law at the time to like show me that like as a queer person growing up in a town of 1200 people that like i was going to be protected mm -hmm. or that if i went to the police when something happened that they weren't going to like laugh at me yeah. or that they weren't going to even make it worse yeah. um and so i think that 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 like that is where some of my experiences growing up has really reflected into larger politics and i think that like 
uh, to segue, if it's okay, like yeah. I know this is a little bit off kilter, but you know, with even with the Club Q shooting that happened in Colorado a couple of weeks ago, you know, like the police didn't take the shooter down. Right. Like the, you know, the community did. The community members inside of the inside of the bar did. And I think that like that to me is a, is a larger example again of these systems that are meant and put in place to control and to create a sense and a sense and idea of security while really not doing its job. Like, right, like like police aren't really doing their job. And I don't mean that in the sense of like, quote, they're lazy and like individuals, I mean like the police really aren't here to protect us. Right, right. No, I mean, I think it's, you know, if you think about the the history of queer life um, and, and queer community, right? I mean, there was always this, I mean, you know this, right? There's always this sense, right? That nobody protects us but us, mm -hmm. right? Nobody looks after us but ourselves. And mm -hmm. I think that that is why, you know, and I think that that imagining of an alternative, mm -hmm. you know, and, and, you know, it's being imagined in a lot of different ways, right? This alternative, you know, alternative communities and family structures, but also this just alternative to living within, right, the kind of uh, patriarchal capitalist time, right? And so when I hear people like, you know, these people, Matt Walsh, lips of TikTok or whatever, you know, the fear that I think that they're expressing when they talk about queer and trans people is not, you know, when they talk about grooming, you know, these people have no problem with child marriage no. or, you know, no. abuse, you know, if, if a father beats up his kid, they, that's not something they have a problem with because in those circumstances, the, the, the control is maintained, mm. right? What, what scares them is I think young people saying, we don't have to live this way. Right. We do not have to live the way that you're telling us that we need to live mm -hmm. and that, you know, larger structures have told us we need to live. Actually, like we are capable of determining for ourselves who we are and we're capable of taking care of each other. And I think that that is so frightening to fascists. Mm -hmm. It is so frightening. Because it's, I mean, it's a lens of control. Right. And it's it, a lens of personal control. And yes. I think that's why it gets from like macro to micro is right. like, it's like the fascism is a, is a means for controlling people into behaviors. Right. And when when people are resistant to that in general, they're the ones that get scapegoated because if everyone did that, then we wouldn't have fascism. I mean, we would still have fascism, but we wouldn't have it in the same sense. Yeah, it wouldn't be powerful. Right. You know, it's not, fascism isn't powerful unless there's, unless you have, you know, boots on the ground, so to speak. But right. there's, there that it's being followed amongst the rank and file. You know, something, everyday people, yeah. Something that came to mind as you were talking about the like the imagination aspect is I think that like people that are continuously or largely oppressed by systems have to inherently live uh, outside of the lens of um, the way that the system was set up. Like they don't really mm -hmm. have a choice. And so I think there is this inherentness around marginalized communities or or communities that have been previously ignored or neglected that have had to create their own communities and sense of imagination and their own sense of like living in a parallel universe almost to the rest of to the rest of the community. And I guess I think about that in my context of like. I think the reason why I have so much hope around imagining something different mm -hmm. is because I've had to. Right. 
like it's like you know like i didn't like wake up one day and was like ah yes i have great like i am just here and have the greatest imagination that's ever existed and like i know i know how this needs to go it's like my lived my life has have has had to be like yeah. this different um this different lens or this different take on how i'm living my life i mean if i even spoke it speak to it from a very general sense right like you know i'm queer i'm not married i don't have children like and um even that in of its sense is like this kind of like i'm not filling a role in a larger like family dynamic of like what was unspoken but expected of me in a family unit and like it wasn't like my parents were like oh you need to have children but like it was like they were grooming me to do all of this because the i think the thing that i the thing that like comes comes back to me in all of this is like we're not sitting to contemplate as parents or as caregivers or even in our communities that there is another way of operating and or that like that way of operating is not the is not the abnormalness it is just a different way yeah does that make sense totally totally i often have felt like the most radical choice that i've ever made in terms of my my own politics is to not get married mm. i just think like as a woman um you know like the figure of the unmarried woman historically has always been something that's like really mm complicated and complex and frightening to people what's you know? the what the a spinster that's yeah, the, a yeah spinster. A spinster. i love being a spinster i totally identify i 100 percent identify because it's like i mean the figure of the spinster the reason right she's called a spinster is because she's economically independent mm -hmm. right she's like i'm not i'm not i'm not in these i'm not in the systems where i'm maintaining this sort of reproductive labor for or also having to choose my behaviors based on how a man gets to control me exactly yeah exactly right it's sort of like and uh, how like marriages inherently can still like like marriage is, is inherently a patriarchal practice right like i'm and i'm not saying that doesn't mean people should get married i'm not like i'm not saying that your marriages aren't great and I'm not saying that, like, I'm not saying death to marriage. I'm just saying that the practice of marriage is patriarchal. Right. It's an institution of control. I mean, the word economics, right, oikos, that's Greek, means the household, right? Because in the Greco-Roman system, you know, 2,000 years ago, the husband owned his wife. Right. He owned his kids. It was, they were commodities to be traded. Right. And so that's the foundation of marriage you know marriage as we see it now or heterosexual marriage as we see it now so it's really tied into um but even in, and even in, even in gay uh, yeah. gay marriages or partnerships like i i have noticed too that like it's easy for the and i'm not saying in any specific instance but i've just noticed collectively like it's easy it's even easy for queer individuals mm -hmm. to fall into like gendered stereotypes of yeah. like how people are supposed to be or constantly be questioned yeah like who is the who is right. the man in the relationship or who's right. the woman yeah and and it like even that questioning is like inherently about creating roles inside right. of the dynamic around who is supposed to be a certain thing and then like yeah, I, I could get really, like, really into this, and I won't because I know that really isn't the topic of this uh, podcast. But it like gets really deep into this idea again, like, to kind of bring it back of like we're expected to play a role, and like we have to play the role within the family unit. Um, and if we're not playing that specific role, 
then like we're seen as less valuable or or society at large does not know how to see us yeah like we can't be recognized by right. them without like giving them like this very predetermined um thing and it's also the reason why i was very upset i don't know if i was upset but like i i really was i don't know upset i guess is the word i would use to say that like i don't know if like the thing that we all should have been fighting for as a queer community should have been marriage first it should have been like you know safety of employment it should have been like not being kicked out of apartments mm -hmm. it should be it should have been like safety in general and then yeah marriage was a part of it but now that marriage has become the pinnacle it almost is like why why do we choose marriage yeah like why like because because to me it's like that's another that's assimilation yeah it's like you're just you're just trying to like queer community is trying to be accepted so much anyway i that's i think yeah. this is another podcast because it's this thing but, about legibility right yeah where it's about or like, credibility yeah i mean because i think i mean like in the sense of like being seen by the state in a particular way yeah and like there's there are particularly there are particular benefits of personhood that come along with being married like mm -hmm. economic and um things mm -hmm. about like um power of attorney and that kind of thing um and i think the question is like <laughs> what are the what are the stakes in that legibility right like what and being a worker in the same way is as a form of legibility right if you think about people who don't work right and the way in which they're perceived by the state i mean i think all the time about like you know um you know for example like in the question of homelessness right this idea of not having a permanent address so like and then you can't register to vote you can't get services mm -hmm. you can't get this you can't get that so there is this connection between like occupying a particular status as a worker and a particular kind of worker because mm -hmm. it's also tied right to questions of citizenship and mm -hmm. and all these other things that um that also are maybe beyond the scope of this episode but um you know the, i think the the only way that the state really can see you is as a productive person mm -hmm. either productive in terms of labor like working or productive in a re, in a productive in a reproductive sense yeah which is the married state right, right? so i think they are they it is all tied together mm -hmm. in 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 a way right this um this idea of like okay you've got to be doing something right? right like even a housewife someone who nominally doesn't work quote unquote right, right is still you know she, she's still providing sexual labor in the terms of reproduction and domestic like reproductive labor in the terms of she's maintaining the household so that, that someone can go out and work and come home mm -hmm. that's the origin of like the wages for household mm. movement or wages for housework movement in the 70s where housewives are saying like our la our labor has dignity and should be recognized in a formal in a formalized kind of way and we can debate about whether you know and framing it in the way of the formal workforce is the answer to that but um there's clearly a there's clearly a relationship between what mm -hmm. it between these different definitions of what it means to be productive yeah and i think that this is a, a good kind of segue too around the idea of like what would a slower economy look like mm -hmm. And like, what would it look like for us to still provide labor? Because we're like, I, I don't, I don't think I, labor exists, right? right. Like, in, in inherently, but like, how can we all, as humans, like individually, try to figure out a way to create a system in which we can actually work, but work in a, in 
a sense where we're not feeling like we're having to overwork or we're not still having our basic needs met. And also like, and, and it's not even the debate over the 40 hour work week or whatever. I think it really is just like, you know, you providing what you can based on what you need to, and then not doing the rest. And I like, I think that like, that's a very radical thought and idea for uh, the American like mind. Yeah. Yes, I think so. Because I do think that we have something, I mean, and I think some of it is probably our like, you know, the Protestant thing, you know, oh, like I mean, the particular Protestant neuroses about, about working yeah. and, and the importance of that. Um, but I also think that like, we really struggle to make a, to make a connection between like work and care, mm -hmm. right? Like that part of the reason if I sell my labor to somebody, right, mm -hmm. then there's an expectation that I am getting something back from them mm -hmm. in either with enough wages that I can live comfortably. And by comfortably, I mean, right, with enough money to feed my family, to pay for my housing and to have fun money because that's it's important too, yeah. you know? Yeah. The thing is not like just to work and go home until you die, right? There needs well, to be and the, third space. And yeah. in the current system, right. the labor that we are all providing is just to make rich people rich. Right, it's fun money for them, right. not for us, right. exactly. Right, and so it's it's kind of like, uh, we've been sold into this idea to be laborers. Yeah. And like, honestly, also then told that we have to, like that we should take on the identity of laborers. Right. So that we can then feel proud about being said laborers when really it's just like uh, oppression of our time and our lives. Yeah. I was just listening to um, uh, Robert Evans' podcast, It Could Happen Here. He's talking about the email that Elon Musk sent out to the remaining Twitter workers. Oh, of like you have to do this, and if you're committed or whatever. Yeah, like you have to. We have to do hardcore like whatever. working, and yeah, yeah. Um, and I, you know, far be it from me to be like the tech worker-led revolution because I don't think we're there yet. But I do think these software developers sort of calling his bluff and taking the severance and leaving yeah. is a good because. I mean, why am I going to kill myself working for Elon Musk? You right, know, like right. why, what is the incentive when... To have a house, to like, to pay rent. No, but I, I understand that. But I also think that, you know, the the idea, right, that, um, that there are, that there are sectors of society mm -hmm. who actually can engage in that kind of mass work stoppage. Oh, no, no, you no. You know, no. like, yeah, yeah. I don't think... You know, it's it. There are certain people. Some people, it's much more precarious to be like "fuck you," mm -hmm. right? Um, but software developers, I think, are not in that class. No. So, you know, I do think that there is that there are people who are uniquely suited to push back, and I also think that they're yes. the group that's least likely to push back. Yes. Because they're the ones with the most proximity to power. Yes. Right. So I do think that. Um, I mean, I, I found it fairly inspiring in like a, a Norma Ray kind of way to go to see them push back and they'll probably go and work for some other equally evil startup. But yeah, um, yeah, I, I hear you on that. I think the other thing too that, that I took away from that podcast on the Nat Ministry is really that when we're able to slow down and really, really like get quiet about like resting and like not being in the grind, mm -hmm. it, that's when we actually get to figure out what like what brings us like potential joy or fulfillment yeah. and like focusing 
And like, it robs us of our own chance of actually discovering and like pursuing things that we actually love and care about. And it doesn't have to be a career even. Right. It doesn't have to be like, oh, I'm gonna start a painting business or you know, whatever. But like, we're all artists in some ways. And I feel that it robs us of our ability to like kind of figure out like what we like to do and, and also have time to like work around with it and not have to like produce immediately. Right. And like to be like, okay, like I've transitioned jobs and now I'm gonna do this and then you instantly have to make money off of it. Or like you instantly have to be like, oh, like I'm a writer now, so I, mm -hmm. I need to get a book published. And then yeah. you see all these like stupid Instagram or TikTok things about like, <laughs> do you wanna write a book in 30 days? Like, do you wanna write a book in 60 days? Or like all of these like fitness trainers mm -hmm. that are like constantly like trying to get like, if you work out, you're gonna feel good. Like, of course, like endorphins from working out, great. Yeah. Right? Like we got it. But it's like, it's like all of this like, um, how to become a good hamster yeah like instead of it being around like you getting the time and space to actually figure out what it is that you like to do when all of this other stuff is taken away from you yeah. or like or you i shouldn't say taken away but like actively you know like like you actively are are developing in that and i think that like we could still have a very productive and a still like great means of uh, of an economic system if we're given people the time to actually think and innovate and like create but like we don't do that because all of the money that gets used is not towards helping people figure that stuff out exactly. and so i think this is where i i kind of feel about the difference between shifting like a radical conception of quote capitalism it's like we're not allocating the money that we do have even towards things that would allow people to have the time and space to figure out what they do like and what they do want and it, again, that doesn't even have to be about labor. If someone want, if someone doesn't, if someone wants to have like just this regular job, that's also okay. Mm -hmm. Their their also career, their also like love could just be like, I don't know, like walking dogs every day. And that also doesn't even have to be a job. It can yeah. just be like something that they like doing. And I think that as I'm trying to like reconceptualize my own life and trying to find my own way through this, it's it's very much just like the capitalist system doesn't allow us to figure it out before we have to constantly prove that because we've transitioned to something or because we're doing something, we have to make a lot of money at it. And that's the only mechanism of us being successful rather than just being. Yeah, yeah. I have a friend who, um, she knits these really beautiful like hats. So like you saw my hat that I mm. made. And she made me this hat and I was like, this is so nice. I said, you should do an Etsy store. You know, I was like, you could sell like lots of hats. And she kind of was like, the time where I make these things, like th that's time for me. And she was like, if I monetized it, it wouldn't be fun anymore. Yeah, It would become labor, right? It would become yeah. work. And I was thinking about it and I was like, there, first of all, I think it's sick that my mind went right to like, you should try to do a brand, right? Yeah. Like you should try to... You should try to brand yourself somehow. Well, because also it's, it's, yeah. like, the, it's like the millennial sort of like, how do we escape capitalism by still participating in yeah, it? Yeah, like if, if being like, a girl boss. Yeah. Right, right, yeah. <laughs> right. Like, <laughs> like, like, like. I think millennials' version of escaping capitalism is like um, trying to not work for corporations. Ish, some of mm -hmm. them. I, I obviously don't want to speak all for all millennials, so that they can like work for themselves. But like that in of itself is still a grind. 
And it's still like this, like it's, you're not really escaping capitalism. You're yeah. just trading it in for something that's kind of different. Yeah. And I'm not saying that I'm, again, I'm not saying that like, if you start your business that I'm not poo-pooing that, like good for you. And I hope that, you know, like that is some people that is a very big want and need for people. But I also think that it like, it has become this like thing that we're, that we're all trying to figure out a way to like make more money off of the things that we do so that like maybe our lives will be slightly better mm -hmm. like i maybe i should ask that as a question like why do we as like millennials or like our current generation continue to try to like get people to monetize it like the the grind set well i do think that it's sort of like i do think that because there's this there's this sort of semi-awareness of um of the increasing like untenability mm. of corporate life um, but I, I do think that, I do think that there's a tendency to like want to reproduce those patterns. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think that well, it's because we all, it's all we know. Right. Exactly. I mean, if you think about, you know, where we, you know, and, people and who are the parents of, you know, the children of corporate people, you know, that's what we know. But I also think that there is something about influencing and the rise of the influencer and how that is sort of like the pinnacle of, um, like millennial, like the like millennial labor dreaming, right? Mm -hmm. Is this idea of becoming the sort of like, and also that like when you're the influencer, you suddenly like have you hire three assistants, right? And then like you actually only have to work two hours a day, but then like you're making all these TikTok videos yeah. about how glamorous your life yeah. is because you've like basically escaped capitalism. Yeah, it is. I think this kind of fantasy of of not working but maintaining this facade. That you that you are somehow working with like and that also that you like that like you have worked hard enough right to like like oh i worked really hard to make sure because that still is a perpetuation right. of this like puritanical yeah like i have to put the work in yeah sort of vibe in order to like feel like i don't have to to like work yeah and you know, I've had, I've had a lot of friends talk to me recently about like that everyone's trying to figure out a way to have passive income mm -hmm. instead of even doing it actively. And I'm like, okay, so we're almost there. So like, <laughs> so like we've almost acknowledged the fact that by passive income, all we are really looking for is money so that we can live and don't have to work X amount of day yeah. days at a time Yeah, because that's actually not the way that the human body is supposed to be working. And, yeah. and and that capitalism in of itself is an experimentation on how far we can push the human body in order to force them into labor and to figure out what that mm -hmm. what that line is. And that's something that actually the NAP ministry points out. And it's actually uh, the capitalism's connection with slavery mm -hmm. and how a lot of it has to do with uh, with the ways that how like how much we could push the body into labor without going into exhaustion. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a I think that's a really like prescient point and i think it's something that doesn't get talked about enough which is we talk about what are the foundations of capitalism and like one of the things that i do with my students for example when we talk about the rise of stock markets and commodity trading like in new york in the 19th century is to say that like all of these markets all of these banks like lehman brothers which doesn't exist anymore but all of these like old lending firms they're all they all came about to facilitate slavery yep. right to facilitate the trading of goods that are predicated on the enslavement of black people yes. right so like 
our, the whole modern American financial system, which is supposed to be right, the freest in the world, the the best in the world, right? It's actually predicated on like the violent exploitation of human beings. Mm-hmm. The same with you know the the way that that colonialism in general played out all over the world. Mm-hmm. The wealth of the global north is built on the backs of the global south, mm-hmm. and again, I think there's this sense of the, that that there's just something about the, the there's just something about like the american markets the british markets that just they just figured it out better well no, no right you violently took advantage of the majority of the world's population and now right the descendants of those people are they can't how how can you catch up there's this really great video um called how how can we win I cannot remember her name, but um, she's an activist in Baltimore talking about um, the ways in which, right, talking about the the uh, the the sort of the the history of the accumulation of black wealth in the United States, and every time, right, black people were trying to create communities that were financially independent, mm-hmm. right, it was violently put which, down by white mobs. Which again, I think is is. An example of them imagining their own, absolutely, right? Like this is what we're talking about. Of like every time there is a sense of imagination created by oppressed by people that are oppressed, and and, um, it gets completely stomped on, and like not just by the government, right? But by by, but by people, right? Exactly. So she talks about you know the Tulsa race riots, Mm -hmm. the burning of Rosewood, right? Mm -hmm. All of these moments of incredible violence and so she says because she's talking about it in the context of looting going on during um during sort of the the george floyd riots um and she's saying like why should i respect a target you know why do i need to respect the symbols of white wealth when any time we have tried to catch up Mm -hmm. we're killed for it our homes are blown up yeah right but i think i think that the uh, the larger part of that conversation i completely agree i think the larger part of that conversation is the fact that we have explicitly made sure that that kind of history is skirted yeah you know like i mean i didn't learn about the tulsa riots when Mm -hmm. i was growing up and if i did it was like maybe a paragraph in in social studies like and the other thing too is is like we as a country continue to not acknowledge our past Mm -hmm and not acknowledge and, and like bring this to the forefront and say, this is actually what happened. We are responsible for this. Yeah. We are sorry. Mm-hmm. Like, and this is how we are going to make, this is how we are going to, you know, either make amends, be accountable reparations. Like there's, there's, a, there's a whole bunch of different, um, there's a whole bunch of different options, but I think a, a lot of it too is like, it's largely been, it's largely been unacknowledged. And so it's not in the cultural, yeah. like it's not in the cultural consciousness. Yeah. So when people say things like that, like, you know, like every time we've tried, mm-hmm. like it doesn't happen, people don't even know what they mean. Yeah. Like they're like, what do you, they, they, they're like, what do you mean? Like I'm a hardworking labor person. Right. And you're like, that's not like, that's not what we're talking about. Right, right. Well, just people are not aware of. But that is the, the, con- the context in which, in which yes. like their own, their own success becomes possible right i'm talking about white people yes right the way in which their own the ways in which our own six our own successes are actually like fundamentally rooted in 
these earlier historical precedents, which we don't know about, right? We don't learn about them. So when we're when they're pointed out to us, mm -hmm. or when we're asked to consider them, it's like, oh, why are you trying to make me feel guilty about something I didn't do? Right. Okay, you didn't do it, but you're still benefiting from right. it, right? Exactly. And you have to be willing to acknowledge that before I think we can even start talking about reform right like mm -hmm. you can't you you have to be able to help people understand that mm -hmm. and to want to do something about it you know mm -hmm. and so for me i think what i try to do with my students and one of the reasons that i show them that video is for them to is for them to start to understand right that um that these so we call the long durée of history right the sort of overarching um overarching trends right for them to understand like these things that had that yes it happened 400 years ago or something like that right we feel them in our bodies now right mm -hmm. we feel them in our social relations now mm -hmm. they have resonances and we have to be able we have to be willing to discuss those resonances even when it's painful and mm -hmm. maybe i think as a country we're also just not good at we're not good at witnessing pain, no. right? We're not Especially good Especially in public or in yeah. public settings, unless it's about someone's, like, parent dying. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I don't, we're not good at acknowledging the, we're not good at acknowledging, like, rage, I think. No, because, because, brief, because yeah. we've been socialized that, like, there is a certain behavior that we are all supposed to exhibit as, as, like, as human beings and, like, to act in a way that is or to behave in a way that is um displaying anger or rage is is synonymous to people as poor behavior like like ha like having feelings and displaying feelings of anger and rage and anything that is honestly considered to be like a not pleasant mm -hmm. emotion yeah is generally considered to be unacceptable behavior in public yeah and like people don't know how to sit with it yeah at all like and and i mean i'm not i'm not even talking about like friendships i'm talking i mean it's like it's like everywhere like yeah. people don't know how to sit with other people's emotions yeah and people get very uncomfortable because we've been conditioned as a society that like that we shouldn't yeah and because because it makes us it would then cue to their well to their own stuff yeah. but also to the idea that like we're all you know that we're all in yeah. we're all in this process that we haven't have the language to talk we don't have the language to yeah. talk about it we don't have the um and we don't have the relationships to talk about it either yeah. and so we're, we all are just sitting here like you know silently trying to either process and or hold it in yeah and part i think of this um this like reimagining we need to do is also creating language and creating connections with people around how they're feeling about capitalism, how mm -hmm. they're feeling about these sort of things and providing that language so that they can have the discussion. Yeah. Because without that, we can't get to the layer of like, okay, so now what do we do about it? Right. Because otherwise we're just like talking about it and we're just like, okay, yeah, this sucks. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think that, I, I, feel, I think that, well, first of all, what I would say is that just to just to qualify what I just said about about pain and anger, um, and I completely agree with the points that you made. I do think that there is. I mean, 
white rage has always been acceptable. That's right? true. White yes. male rage is partic has particularly mm -hmm. always been acceptable. Mm -hmm. So there is space for certain kinds of anger mm -hmm. because it's somehow that's like logical and rational. It's okay. Yes. Right. But other people's anger somehow de it delegitimizes their argument in the yes. face of the structure. Yes. Right. So if I get up and I am talking about you know, if I'm talking about my experience with with capitalism or with patriarchy or something like that, and I raise my voice or I start crying or something like that, that's it's no longer legitimate, right? I'm hysterical. I'm emotional. It's not a it's not a, a logical argument. So part mm -hmm. of it is that also, right? And like in an intersectional level, right? The people who I think have the most at stake are also the ones who feel that kind of hundred um, percent that need for restriction the yes. most. Yes. And it, it absolutely prevents collective action. Yes. Right. Because people feel like they can't talk about it. They won't talk about it. Mm -hmm. And if they feel like they can't emote and express themselves, um, they won't like they won't talk about it. I mean, in my classes, like I let my students cry. I let them get mad. I let them yell, you know, within reason. They shouldn't yell at each other. But um, one of the things I tell them is like those feelings and those emotions that, that that's actually like they actually help shape how mm -hmm. how you perceive the things that we talk about right mm -hmm. and like they're worth listening to and they're worth acknowledging so i feel like i try to in my own small way as my own like authoritarian person in my classroom yeah i do try, you try I to think, create that space i do try to create that space and i don't think that in the kinds of kinds of mm -hmm. like disciplinary spaces like spaces where you learn to talk and engage and like be a human schools being one of them there's just no place for that and so mm -hmm. i mean i think it's a shame because it is part of developing a political consciousness yeah and i think yeah. that I, I think that we can uh like i think the interesting thing the observation that you just mm -hmm. talked about now is this idea that like to be logical is to be unemotional yeah and like to have a clear argument is to be like disassociated or detached yeah and that like that i i don't know necessarily i don't know necessarily where that comes from but like i think that is the narrative that i was definitely sold yeah that like to to like win the public's eye mm -hmm. or public's perception you have to be very like put together yeah and like not put together in a like physical sense or like whatever but like put together in like a presentation wise so that people will treat you legitimately yeah. and that like if you cry if you like have an emotion or whatever then it like it it somehow like it somehow people are like oh well they're having a bad day yeah like you can immediately delegitimize someone by just saying oh well they're crying yeah and you're like oh so so they don't have their their what they have to say is no longer valid because they're ha they're they're having an emotional experience about it Yes, because this I think there is somehow this perception that like the ideal the old the ideal person to talk about things like racial or class oppression is somebody who's not impacted by it. Right. Right. And I think that, I mean, it's completely sick, like it completely reinforces power structures. Right. But the idea of like the more removed from it you are, mm -hmm. the more the more accurately you can talk about it. But mm -hmm. like. I mean, just if you just take take that argument and you look at it in its face, it's clearly bullshit, right? Because we feel these. I mean, I keep talking about this, but we do like we feel these things in our bodies. Like yeah. when we think about, you know, when I think about the experiences that I've had, right? Like I do feel, I I have certain bodily sensations that lead me to help me art come up with and articulate my points, mm -hmm. right? And so, um, 
it's just I I I don't know what the origin of that is, but I do think that it serves power incredibly well because well, I mean, so yeah. I so I I have been doing a lot of um, healing work uh, myself around like regulating my nervous system, and a lot of it has to do with like the, the vagus nerve, mm -hmm. vagus nerve. I, I would say vagus nerve, and I, people that's not a thing. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, but um, it is around uh, like helping your body feel like like that it is in a safe space right. helping your body feel like whatever is whatever is happening for you because your body actually sends more information to your brain which then tells the brain what right. to do and like there's been a, a lot of previous understanding has basically been that like um we our brain tells the body what to do right and that's not really how it's working mm -hmm. um and so there's a lot of stuff called like somatic experiencing right. uh stuff like that and this is all like definitely inter intermixed within the idea of oppression capitalism racism yeah. um i'm reading the book uh right now my grandmother's hands and it's about um it's about uh being able to experience um a lot of like um you know trauma in the body mm -hmm. and it's specifically written for uh black people yeah um as a way to kind of come back to their bodies mm -hmm. and be in that so that they can experience uh those things um so yeah um i think that we're just over an hour so maybe we should wrap up for we'll the first episode up. um but is there anything that is coming to mind that else that you want to say before we go i don't think so um i mean i think this was hopefully people feel like um we've offered some things to think about and yeah um i think this is these these things that came up about the body and and feeling i think are things we'll probably get into in future episodes so definitely keep listening for more <laughs> <laughs> yeah i think um i really feel good about how we kind of just uh let let it flow and that's probably a lot about what the what the flow is probably going to be like for yeah. episodes as well um and you know we it won't always specifically be about capitalism although like it's probably going to come up a lot yeah um and we'll see what other episodes come from there and um again this is the burn it down already podcast with like kelly and rachel rothenberg and we hope that you listen again soon yeah thanks everyone thanks take care